So today we have a special treat. We have Val who has journeyed long, long way from Jamaica Plains, is that right? In the Boston area. She was formerly on staff with our sister church, The Reservoir, and she is also an author of a book that we have back at the table called Farewell to Disneyland, My Decade of Young Widowhood. She's a great writer. Today and today only, this book is on special for $5. So that is a deal. Val is also uh, was a past co-host of a podcast that you may have listened to called the Blue Ocean Faith Podcast. She was one of my favorite on that podcast. So please join me in welcoming Val. Well, um, again, I'm so honored to be standing here, and uh, thank you for hanging in there um, with the heat. I was reflecting that since life is most often quite long, it's got to be filled with struggle and half-filled hopes and often disappointments. And if those things get left uh, unaddressed, that pain can turn to sort of sores and a way that we start to look at uh, our life as a glass half empty. And then if we turn that view towards God, it could alter our perspective on God and just think God is kind of empty-handed or maybe a liar. I'm thankful that we get a bunch of clues and often profound guidance of how to live from the Bible, I think. Uh, Faith in God is described in the Bible as a long-term journey, even a long race, like a marathon. Now, if you've run marathons or watched marathons like I have, the watching part, um, you know that in the middle, if you see the runners, it's often pretty ugly. And a lot of people collapse or quit. And I wonder how a long faith functions in our lives. Who is God to us? when considering unanswered problems and unanswered longings. How can we mature? I realize I am still trying to grow up. How can we even grow old and die as people at peace, feeling the richness of God's gift of our life? And we're not bitter because everything we wanted we didn't get, or maybe it wasn't the way we wanted to get it. So I thought we could look at a couple passages from the Bible. For time's sake, I'll read first the one from 2 Timothy. I think it's first, uh, second, sorry, on your program. And then in a few minutes, we'll read the one from Hebrews. Let's read together if you want. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. As for me, Paul said, I'm already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
I want to highlight first a huge piece of good news promised and then a warning based on our choices in life. I'll explain up front that I have been widowed, so I have watched my first husband die. My two parents are in their mid and late 80s and frail, and we kind of wonder at any moment, will they go? And we just said goodbye when my new mother-in-law passed away two weeks ago in Pennsylvania. So I'm particularly mindful of the end of our lives and that rite of passage. First, the exciting news. Joy and honor, Paul says, with a crown of righteousness is given to those who are willing to put everything second to longing for God's presence. And then a warning. Don't substitute myths for God. We all get itchy for answers and for satisfaction or power. But stay sober and keep on doing good and endure your suffering. So the summary might be having a patient focus on God for our whole life is the way we can have the permanent blessings life can offer. Now, it's possible the Bible claims God has this reality beyond the earthly reality we see. Sweaty temperatures, you know, our children getting tired and whiny. It's kind of promised that there's this reality, right? And we have to decide, well, do we believe that? You know, is there a glory beyond the curtain, so to speak? I have to say, you know, some days, given like beauty or some kind of mysterious experience I have, I think, yeah, I I could smell it. I could smell that maybe there is a paradise. And other days, I'm like, who knows what's beyond? As for living out persistent faith, it sounds like normal things to say in the church. Don't give up believing in God. But I think it's extremely difficult to live out. Now, why is that? I think everything in humanity longs for a myth. We get itchy ears for quick and resolvable fixes to our problems. I think it's a particular sickness for humankind, whether it's in public life or in relationships between people we know. It can happen with bosses. It can happen with roommates, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses. And certainly it can happen with political leaders. I'm sure it's come up around your circles. We think, I think, I speak for myself, Trump got elected on a myth. And I'm not actually talking about like the waves of hate. Um, though I think it's particularly and deeply saddening. I don't know if any of you heard, by the way, Joe Walsh, former congressman, apologized this week for the waves of hate that helped him promote Trump and disparage other people, and he apologized public for it. That's kind of a big deal. I'm actually not talking about neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, though. I'm talking about regular good people. We long for myths. So my new father-in-law spent his life with eight very hard blue-collar jobs in Western Pencil- in uh, Pennsylvania. He's, one of his primary jobs was to plug holes in furnaces in the steel factory. That's after coming home from the Navy. Then he worked in a glass factory, and his cush job was driving a forklift in a warehouse. He longed for the return of manufacturing jobs, like so many other people did, in a field which really is a myth because it's fast being replaced by machines, right? We can long for strength in the international scene, that our country would be strong in trade. But true conservatives are really freaking out, like what is happening with our wild behaviors in the international scene? That's a myth, that we could just be a strong man. Or culturally, we can long for like a unified, strong culture, but that's at the expense of all diversity. 
It comes from the left, too, though. I was thinking about um, how much worship of Obama there's been. You know, if you get online, there's like endless Obama forever, 44 forever. Obama's still my president. I'm like, no, that's a myth. It's a constitutional impossibility that Obama is still the president. And I found something that I thought is the best non-myth respect for a leader that I respect. And it's this calendar. And it's Obama's, you know, sitting in a suit or something. And it says his name. And then it says citizen. I was like, yes, that's not a myth. (laughs) My husband James and I love Netflix, like maybe many of you do. We find our shows that we like. Netflix is trying to overcome some of those old myths some of us grew up with, but it's actually perpetuating new myths. So, for example, I have one show I've watched, Working Moms. Kate is a PR executive. Some of you are nodding. So, Kate is in a company, she gets sidelined because her son gets deathly ill, she thinks. So then, you know, she's basically being let go. And she walks into some high-ups office, like an HR director or senior executive, and with one threatening comment, literally it took like 30 seconds, this executive hands her a huge severance paycheck. And with that, Kate starts her own PR firm. And I was like, I have a friend who started a small business. That's a myth. My friend had way more compromise, failure, longing, disappointment, and just sweat equity to get her business going. But for Kate on Working Moms, it was like a 30-second scene. You know, it's a myth. We long for success. We long for safety. And we long for loving connection. Can God offer us a rich, fulfilling life versus a myth for quick fixes? I want to turn for more clues back to 2 Timothy. He said, always be sober. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I'm being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there's reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Not only to me, but all who've longed for his appearing will get this. Now, here's an important insert. The Bible is not just giving us tips for self-help. It's not actually that. I think it makes a pretty strong case consistently that what we live for is pretty crucial. In Paul's case, according to his letter, it's to someday long for this historical reckoning with God, that God's going to come close again in a special way and right all the wrongs in history and heal all the brokenness in ourselves and others. It's to long that all of the injustice in humanity will be addressed and God will honor a righteous following of God's ways. And especially, I think Paul's making the case he's going to honor those who have a stubborn adherence to hoping in God. You might say a blind hope some days. We each need to consider, I think freely, without pressure, what do we do about that ache on earth? The one that never fully gets addressed. The one that never fully thinks everything is quite right. Are we willing to leave space for God to work over time? Or do we just fill it up? Again, it could be good stuff. Could be neutral, could be bad, but do we fill up the space because it's just too hard to live with that ache? Life is a marathon, and we are free, especially in a post religious America, increasingly, where religious leaders have learned it's not helpful to apply some kind of religious guilt. You have to believe something or you don't. We're free to decide, right? What do we do with our life and our choices about that ache? Now, if that ultimate reality offer does appeal to us, we could take seriously the directions Paul gives to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 5. 
to gain all the good God might offer, to be sober about what the world offers us. Be mindful. Life will always bring suffering, even if God's with us. It's not like if God's with us, life is easy. It's just life brings suffering. Hard stuff happens. And hang in there. Now, this phrase that um, he said, share good news about God, do the work of an evangelist. I don't know about you, but increasingly that word's problematic in our culture, right? Like increasingly we might associate that with misogyny and racism, but originally evangelist meant somebody who shares good news about God. Well, what news was it in the ancient world? It was that Jesus was embracing broken people and incorporating people who'd been sidelined and rejected, disabled people, women, outcasts in general, and that Jesus was some kind of perfect judge or royal bringer of peace to humankind and ultimately was God's own presence and person with us. I mean, that is actually good news, a healing, soothing kind of news, right? And ministry, what does it mean to do our ministry? I think it's just whatever work you have, whatever work God's given to you. It doesn't have to be like religious work, right? Ministry, we could spiritualize that, but it's just like, is it domestic work? Is it corporate work? Is it nonprofit? Is it political? Whatever work, just be faithful at the task in front of you. Here's a few ways for me personally that I've tried to apply this phrase that Paul used in the sec- uh, two verses later in verse 7. He said, fight the good fight of faith in a life that's a marathon for me. And these two ways that I'm going to share, they all kind of have to do with the sermon title, let longing also be an answer in your life. One is I try to battle the myths I get in my head that really mess me up. The biggest myth for me personally leans heavily on the Disneyland and Hollywood version of romance. Blended with a special ingredient of fake modern Western Christianity. So I came across in my younger years, less so now, but in my younger formative young adult years, it was like a million books about the perfect marriage in a religious terms too. And I learned from those that marriage should be where you're with your soulmate and your best friend. And every night you go to sleep having resolved every difference. And then because God's with you, you have addressed every character flaw in about two years. Not only that, if your parents, your children just feel the oozing love of wisdom of God through you and your every disciplinary action, and they just fall in line and grow up well. And then if you're throwing in that a little Hollywood ingredient, it also means you're kind of gorgeous and rich too. What's been hardest for me is that my sons lost their dad to cancer nine years ago. So as a mother to three fatherless boys, I now look at my husband, James, and think about his relationship with his three stepsons. It should be like the perfect bromance mixed with deep and wise talks about counsel for life. And please also get the chores done side by side and then step out for athletic exercise. And then meanwhile, could you hug them a lot and affirm your love for them and have healthy touch while sitting on the couch, maybe watching a movie that stirs up conversation about gender and race equity. (laughs) And then as a spouse, don't forget to affirm me (laughs) and give conversations with me about my beauty and my smarts. (laughs) And then also bring up timely financial conversations to assure me that you're tracking with financial provision for our family. And don't eat too many potato chips. (laughs) Now, to get sober from my myth of the perfect spouse, I meditate and read up 
on the fact that ancient marriage was primarily a societal stabilizer. It was basically so you carry on your lineage and you don't starve the family by losing the farm. Paul himself said marriage is actually kind of not what it's about. It could be pretty distracting. So it's not all about settling down in society in terms of what God expects or God has for us in terms of fulfillment. And though we do get parts of the Bible that says love and respect each other, it's still in the historical context of constant natural disasters, political occupation, threat of war, and death by torture in that era. And your default career... It was not your dream job. It's basically you do what your parents did forever. Now, in reality, battling the myths over my life is not that I don't negotiate for what I need and want. I have to be clear. There are real issues that arise that I have to just try to figure out. Is this a need I address or don't? Maybe in your context, it's similar or different like at work. You have to think, well, I might have the myth of the perfect job, but you know, in order to accept those realities, I also have to figure out what's real and what do I ask for differently or more or less in your life. Secondly, what I try to do to stay in this marathon of life is that on my own, I talk to God and I pray just saying, God, I'm so unsatisfied right now. Just honestly, I'm just getting my buttons pushed. You know how I feel. And then often I get in touch with, you know what, that's not really about what's going on out here. It's really about my loss or my own grief or just the reality of human limitations and my own flawed perspective on things. And then I ask God, meet my needs, meet my boy's needs. And between us, meet the, and redeem all of the things that have been hard or gone wrong or struggle in our lives, all of our lives. The ultimate success of our lives is not in our control. And I ask the God that I hope in to bring the history of my life and my family's life to a good end. What about others? What did they do with their longing? So this is where that other passage might come into play. Hebrews 11 and 12, we have some excerpts. So here we see a bunch of people listed and some descriptions. I'll skip a verse in the middle and then finish it. By faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace, it tells us. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and then lists all these other amazing things they did. Yet all these people, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, as if like all the people in history are watching us and cheering us on, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of joy set before him, endured the cross, despised or disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's my favorite part. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Amen. Here we have the race analogy again. It's just like Paul wrote to Timothy. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, life is a long, long race. Run it well, and you can't even imagine what joy awaits you and what fulfillment and honor 
And it's really, what does it mean to run well? We could think, oh, all perfectionists about it. I think it just means don't give up. Jesus is our example, the writer said, right? He did it for joy, and he suffered greatly. He had public and private rejection. What I like to think of, though, it could seem like a downer, but I like to think about, like, who are these people and what are the challenges they had? Because they're kind of intense. Rahab is listed. Well, Rahab is, like, triply disempowered in her world. She's a woman, for one. She's a Canaanite. And then the occupying Israelite army, they smell, oh, my gosh, they're going to take us over. So we are done. And she's a brothel host. She's a prostitute. She's an innkeeper, probably also a prostitute. It's all kind of mixed together. And she's lifted up. But she had some real hardship. Gideon is listed. He tells God, I'm the youngest, the smallest, and the lowliest tribe. So he's not a very important person. Samson, we think of him as like strong Samson. But in the middle of his life, he's stripped of his talent. He messed up. He got fooled by someone who wasn't trustworthy. So he failed. And then he ends up in prison, blind and weak, a failure. Samuel, big prophet, well, his own kids were rejected by the elders of Israel because they took bribes. So he's totally shamed, right? His own lineage is shamed and can't carry on his office. That's pretty tough. Abraham, considered by all monotheistic faiths to be like a father of faith, supposedly he received big promises from God when he was 75, but by the time he's 99, they still haven't come true, so that's a long time to wait. It's not an easy thing to meditate on people who just waited and waited over a long, long time and didn't have clear-cut answers. But for me, it feels grounding and hopeful, I think, because it's not that Hollywood two-hour fix. And they had to face real obstacles to keeping their faith alive. My book that Sarah kindly mentioned is about these themes. So I was widowed, but more than the crisis of going through cancer and the immediate terrible pain of death, it's actually been the mediocrity of life and just surviving and believing God is still good and with me that's been harder. So that's what the book's about, is giving up on the myths of a Disneyland life. Is our only prize in heaven? I can wonder, is that our interpretation of what Paul's saying or Hebrews is saying? I don't think so. I think about the life Paul must have lived. Here he is. He's starting churches all over the Mediterranean. And he's writing about the people who hosted him everywhere he goes, the friends he made, the impact he had. He could have just quit and just said, what is going on? You people are fighting. You're not doing what I told you. You know, things are not going well. I'm getting thrown in prison. I'm getting falsely accused. Life's hard. But instead, he actually writes about, oh, you are my joy. I have so many joyful moments when I think of you who I love. And I think he wouldn't have got that blessing along the way if he had just said, you know, it's my way or the highway. But he hung in there for the marathon. I want to share two stories of um, people I know and love and why they inspire me. One is James. First, I want to tell you about my dad. My dad is 87, like I said. And he is an orphan. We were talking with the Parks last night at dinner. World War II was a massively traumatic time. My dad was orphaned at 11. And he was in China. And the Japanese came in. And so they're running from the Japanese. And he suffered the loss of his parents, split up from his siblings. And then by the age of 13, he was with 300 teenage refugees running south from the north. And at one point, he had one little bag. And he was under a bridge. And he loves telling me about eating food with maggots. That's just his story. (laughs) But you know, it's like, here they are and they're all on death's door and he gets his one family photo taken. And he's like, I could have just given up. 
because a lot of people died. A lot of teenagers with him died. But he kept on going. And then the war is over, World War II. And then the communists come in. So now they're running from Mao. <laughs> they keep on going south. And then the National Army under Chiang Kai-shek, who's fleeing but also fighting, they conscript all these teenagers into the army. So by now, my dad is like 15 or 16, and he gets conscripted into the army. And he's like, oh, all I want to do is be a student. But he's running, running, running. And he ends up on a ship about to fight the war with the communists. And they're docking. And he just thinks, I don't want this. I want to keep my dream and keep going to be a student. I don't want to die in war. So he jumps off the ship. And he swims to the dock. And then because he was allowed to wear his old school uniform, they didn't consider him as an AWOL soldier. And so he got away and he went to the school and he's like, here I am to enroll. But he didn't play for years. He just kept suffering and working and working. And he has the story so many people we know and love have of an immigrant story. And he was lucky and maybe blessed. I think a lot of God moments along the way, he ended up doing his dream He ended up a doctor, which was his dream. He ends up in L.A., and over the course of his life, he got to bring his family to America. He got to have a family. He got to have four kids. He got to help bring MRI scans to Catholic hospitals in all of Los Angeles. And now he gets to love on his grandkids. And now he's having strokes. But, you know, he's like, I have lived a full life. And the whole thing he said along the way was kind of mechanistic. He would say, trust in the Lord. You know, and he has a lot of character flaws that never got addressed. But he would still say, like, I ran the marathon. (laughs) It's like he's full of joy because he can say, God stuck with me. And I think not all of us are going to bring MRI technology, you know, or whatever the next big technology, false 3D, new prosthetic lungs or something, you know, but, but we can hang in there and do whatever work we have to do, right? He didn't give up. And I think that's the inspiration he has for me. Faith is the marathon. My, James, uh, my husband James has had to live that. He suffered severe loss in his life. He has suffered and continues to suffer. Um, he had the unjust loss of his sons at the end of his marriage. They've grown up across the world apart from their dad in a truly complicated and unideal situation for their lives and for their relationship with their dad. Now, James had the choice years and years ago. Do I choose bitterness or do I choose the marathon of love? for my sons. Would he be justified in choosing bitterness? Sure. Would he, James, say he's absolutely sure that the end will turn out totally well? James would be the first person to say, some days, who knows? But he kept calling. He kept reaching out. He's kept visiting. He's kept connecting, kept mentoring. And our visit last month to Australia, where I got to meet my four new stepsons and my three boys, their four stepbrothers, seven teenage boys, all together at different points. We saw new moments that the life and faith marathon is worth it. One tiny example in this trip was that we spent time with James's second son, all of them, but second son was on our hearts especially because he had a really rough year. And at some point, James and his son were hanging out, and James says, do you need anything? And his son says, yeah, I could use a toaster and an electric kettle. So the very next day, James goes to Target, Australia, <laughs> and gets the toaster and electric kettle for his son. It's a tiny example, but I think it's a powerful moment that along the marathon, there's these moments of love and beauty. Why? Because every time Elijah wakes up and wants to make himself breakfast, if it's still breakfast time, maybe it'll be lunch, he'll think of his dad loving and providing for him. 
but it's only because James has not quit the marathon. You see? Because he chose love, does he get the pleasure of seeing these redemptive moments and hope for more redemptive moments in the future? Had he raised his fist at God, James says, and allowed anger and bitterness to help him quit the race, to consume him, he tells me our relationship, his current life, wouldn't even be possible. He wouldn't be in a place as a person to even have a relationship or a life. Instead, he asks his sons time and time again, what Lego minifigures do you want for Christmas? Or tell me about the cute girl that seems to like you that sits on the bus next to you. Or tell me about how family life's going. Tell me about your views on culture. And he listened to them, and their views were heard, and their dad gave some input, but mostly just accepted them. Someday, I think that crown of righteousness promised in Timothy will come. Someday, as the writer of Hebrews said, I believe that the knees that have been weak and put out of joint will not be put out of joint, but actually be healed. The lame things will be healed because life is a marathon. Faith is a long, hard road. There's a lot of ugliness along with a beauty. But I think God is present and still working. And we can keep longing for more. Again, with faith, we can even say when we pray with an attitude of, it really is my way or the highway, God. When we think, though, God must work in a particular way to believe that God's working, I think we could miss out. We don't actually know how God works or when for most things. But what we can control is whether we hang in there in the race and whether we keep doing good or keep loving or not. Can we pray? Okay, let's pray. God, there's no way around it. Um, All the things I struggle with, they're real things, even though I made light of them on the family front. It's real. And it's tough. It's tough to look at our life and say, well, there's that spot. That's pretty painful. That's not answered. And it's tough to have longings that go unanswered over many times, uh, many years, many times of asking you. So I pray that you would give us tenacity to hang in there, Uh, eyes to see the glass half full. That's very hard. My husband's much better than me at it, to see the glass half full or maybe much more than half full. And half full because of you, that we could somehow connect it with you and see You're the God with the full hands, always wanting to bless us and able to do so. Protect us, God, from bitterness and help us hang in there. In Jesus' name, amen.